listeners, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 157. Uh, God willing, the gang mostly will be back in the next week or two. So we'll be back to conversation-based podcasts. Uh, For the time being, you're stuck with me for one or two more podcasts. Uh, My name is Craig. I'm the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. Today, for Secret Movie Club Podcast 157, I wanted to talk about filmmaker sensibilities. And specifically, it's fascinating how uh, one sensibility, like, give you an example, uh, Igmar Bergman, uh, just to pull one out, will have such a huge influence on so many filmmakers around the world. Uh, But the actual number of people who've seen Bergman films is still a tremendous amount. Uh, But then someone else will have a sensibility like a um, Spielberg or a James Cameron or a Peter Jackson. And just by dint of the fact that they're making movies for American cinema, the, they're gonna. Their movies will be seen by hundreds of millions, if not sometimes a billion people or more. And I, we're gonna just talk about uh, filmmaker sensibilities today. It's just something that's been on my mind, based on an anecdote. Not an anecdote, actually, something that David Lynch said in his autobiography, Room to Dream. Uh, this week, we are going to be. By the time you hear this, it's going to be uh, Friday, October thirteenth. And tomorrow, we are dark tonight, but tomorrow, October 14th, we are showing Alfred Hitchcock Presents. We're showing four amazing episodes that Hitchcock himself directed for his TV show, including one that I believe is called One More Mile to Go that plays as a rough draft almost for the first 30 or 40 minutes of Psycho, which we're then showing. Monday, October 16th, we're doing the I Have Discovered the first horror blockbuster ever, uh, it appears. 1911's Le Inferno. Uh, it was also Italy's first feature film. And we have Montopolis, who were with us for the man with the movie camera, Ziga Vertos' man with the movie camera. They're returning with their live score. Wednesday, October 18th, we have The Resistance coming back, uh, an amazing improv troupe. And they are going to do what they've been doing now uh, once or twice a year, They're going to do the first uh, hour will be in our back room. They're going to take suggestions from the audience and they basically improv a movie. You pick the genre, you pick uh, the characters, you contribute a lot. It's pretty amazing how they do it. And then they perform basically a 40 minute movie and we'll take a little break and then they're going to come into the theater and they are going to live dub the cult hit Monos, The Hands of Fate. Uh, often considered one of the most mind-blowing uh, horror movies ever made. Thursday, October 19th, we are doing uh, Michelangelo Antonioni's The Passenger on 35 millimeter. You may have heard the pod where Patrick McElroy and I discussed La Ventura, and you discovered that I am not a fan of La Ventura. Although I know why people, why it's canonical. I know why it rocks so many people's wor- worlds. I just, it's not for me. Uh, but... There are two Antonioni movies specifically that I that I think are amazing, that I get, and I think it, his reputation is deserved. And uh, these are Blow Up and The Passenger, starring Jack Nicholson. Uh, just an amazing movie in the mid-'70s about a guy who's really disenchanted with his life, and he's a journalist, and he has this opportunity to switch identities with a dead man he discovers in a hotel room, and he does. And that's on 35. So that's the upcoming week. As always, you can email us, community at secretmovieclub.com. 
if you just follow us on Eventbrite, go Eventbrite Secret Movie Club, you'll find out about new events. And then just go to secretmovieclub.com. Uh, we have our movie store posters. We have blogs. We've got live original productions. A lot of stuff at secretmovieclub.com to get you part of the movie community. And I will say that our workshops and open mic short nights uh, are starting to heat up. We did a workshop last night of writers and actors, and there were a lot of people there. So if you're in the Southern California area and you want to just get making things, making uh, writing or acting, making scenes, shooting short films, uh, check out every the usually the first or second Wednesday of every month we do a workshop, and the last Wednesday of every month we do an open mic short night of local filmmakers' movies, and we have a competition, and you can hang out with movie people and be with your peeps uh, and see great new work and uh, create so there you go all right moving on so today I wanted to talk about sensibilities and it, this all stemmed from a, a passage in David Lynch's room to dream where he said that he was at some kind of party or event and Steven Spielberg was there uh, and I love the. It's not ironic, but I love the. He, David Lynch couldn't have known when he wrote this that just a few years later, Steven Spielberg would cast him in Fablemans to play John Ford, so their paths would cross. So David Lynch was at a party, and he said something to Spielberg like, "You know, Steve, I make movies, and even if they're hits and people like them, only thousands of people see them. You make movies, and people love them, and they're great, and." Millions of people see them. And then supposedly Spielberg responded to Lynch and said, well, you know, with the way that streaming and I don't know what he said because I think this was a few years ago, but with the way that uh, home media is going, ultimately, as many people will have seen Eraserhead as have seen E.T. And Lynch and I always tip my hat to Lynch for his honesty in autobiography. He ends that little anecdote by saying, I don't think that's true, <laughs> but it's a great little anecdote. And it got me to thinking about sensibilities because we all love the music we love and we all love the movies that we love and the literature that we love and the art we like to consume. Uh, and what's interesting is that some filmmakers have these sensibilities that appeal across the board. Uh, I would cite filmmakers like uh, Spielberg, Hitchcock, Peter Jackson, James Cameron, John Ford, Howard Hawks, people who really believe in cinema, they love these filmmakers. And people who don't know anything about movies also love these filmmakers. A Coppola, I think you have to put on that list for sure. Uh, Scorsese. And then there are filmmakers, I guess I was taught in geometry uh, when I had to tutor geometry in my past life. I was a tutor before Secret Movie Club, and I tutored the SAT and the ACT for a very long time. When I would do math and we get to geometry, there was this one lesson was in geometry. If you want to understand geometry, first uh, sketch out the extremes, and then you can actually understand the concept you're dealing with. So if you're trying to explain an obtuse angle, which is larger than 90 degrees, don't teach it to a student by showing them a 91 degree angle and an 89 degree angle, because they're both going to look like 90 degree angles and the concept's probably not going to be communicated. But if you show them a 179 degree angle and then you show them a five degree angle and you say, okay, the 179, and that basically looks almost like just a straight line, that's obtuse. Uh, this other one, that's acute. And usually people are like, I get it. And then you can go in 
and get more subtle. So going from the the people we just name checked, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, you have filmmakers like Terrence Davies, who just passed away, rest in peace, Peter Greenway, um, the uh, I, I want to Alexei Germain, who made Hard to Be a God. Um, you might even say like Alan Renee and uh, many, many filmmakers who several of their movies achieved pretty big international success. I mean, of the people that I just named, Alan Renee made Hiroshima Mon Amour, made Last Year at Marion Bad, made Night in the Fog. And these movies were part of the French New Wave and were seen all over the world and are routinely shown in film schools or seen by film school students. But I think it's probably safe to say, you can really make an even easier case when you talk about Peter Greenaway, who uh, made a movie called The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, which is still probably his biggest hit. Uh, Amazing movie with Helen Mirren and Michael Gambon, also rest in peace. Got an NC-17. Very artistic film. A lot of sex, a lot of nudity, but also like amazing color-coordinated sets. Uh, A lot of references to art, literature. And Peter Greenaway made a number of other movies that I love. Drowning by Numbers is a great one. Zed and Two Knots, a pillow book with Ewan McGregor, was a later one that a lot of people saw. Prospero's Books with John Gilgood, adaptation of The Tempest is amazing. Uh, But the thing there is that Peter Greenaway's sensibility, which is very literate, He's constantly referencing, you know, I don't know his background, but I have to imagine his background was in art history of some kind. He's he's referencing painters. He's referencing uh, writers. His sensibility can often be very British in a great way. He's referencing musicians and music from the Renaissance and the 16th century. And if you're if you're on that wavelength and you like that kind of filmmaking and also his movies always have these very weird structures and formal structures so to give you an example drowning by numbers i love because it's about a series of murders but you play this game where in almost every shot there's a number until it gets to 100 and you start to just and you know it, it becomes a different thing you don't lose yourself in the movie you start to play this game of where's the 1 where's the 10 Where's the 15? And it's still beautifully shot, and it's a lot of fun. There's murder. Uh, But it's very formal. And you have to imagine that not a lot of people uh, saw Peter Greenaway movies and or have seen Peter Greenaway movies. And yet, I would absolutely recommend to people to see at least uh, Drowning by Numbers, Prospero's books, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, uh, Zed and Two Knots, uh, at minimum— because those, and he made another one which I haven't seen, or if I've seen, I, I've blanked a little bit, called The Draftsman's Contract, which was, I think, the movie that put him on the map. Uh, you know, a sensibility that tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people have seen, it, the easiest example would be James Cameron, because I think Mr. Cameron currently holds, <laughs> I think, three of the five top grossing movies of all time are James Cameron movies, Avatar 1, Avatar 2, and Titanic. And... Uh, Cameron is someone I love. We've we've talked about James Cameron. He was just in Los Angeles. Uh, I don't know if he's back from New Zealand permanently, but uh, he was in Los Angeles talking about the abyss. And Cameron is someone who, he's an artist. I think it's undeniable. Uh, I love Cameron movies. There's not a Cameron movie I don't like. Uh, although I haven't seen Piranha 2, The Spawning. And I know he's not, (laughs) he doesn't remember that one super fondly as well, but it did create nightmares when he was in Italy that created the the Terminator. So out of suffering, uh, the gold. But, uh, you know, my favorite camera movie is Aliens. 
I think Aliens is maybe the best action movie ever made. Although it's action sci-fi, it's its own thing. It's got horror elements. And that's a heretical viewpoint because a lot of people who are Alien fans, and I love Alien, uh, but they're two different movies to me. And my wavelength is a little more Aliens because I feel that the storytelling in Aliens and the filmmaking and the storytelling come together just in this way that it, that's Cameron. That's pure Cameron. I've always thought I heard Stephen King say once in an interview, someone asked him about his muse and he had a great metaphor where he said he does have a muse, but that was, some people talk about their muse being almost like a Grace Kelly-esque beautiful woman or debonair man who comes to them in visions and gives them an idea and they're sophisticated and ethereal and uh, people will talk about their muses being demigods and this and that. And Stephen King was like, my muses are three guys drinking beer in the basement in Maine, you know, watching sports out of the side of their eye, talking about things that are happening in the town, cracking open a six pack, but out of their mouths come some pretty amazing, weird things and ideas. And that's, those are my muses. And I always thought about that because I think that was a great thing. Now, I think Stephen King was playing a little bit because he's a very literate cat. And when you look at his top 10 books, uh, I'm the reason I've read William Faulkner's Light in August and uh, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian and Charles Dickens' um, Bleak House is because at different points in time, Stephen King put them on his top 10 list. So Stephen King is a very literate dude who definitely will go uh, and read hard, hard, complicated books, et cetera, et cetera. But I, but I do think that he has resolutely, his whole career as an author, worked to write stories the same way. What I'm getting at is the same way I think James Cameron makes movies, which is he wants them to be works of art, and they are. Uh, both of them make works of art. That's what I'm trying to get at. They also want those movies uh, to be accessible. They want those movies to be enjoyed by the, the most amount of people. So they really make sure to crack the story and to, to deal with colors and story beats that are going to work for a lot, a lot of people. And still, I will point out, James Cameron movies have themes. Uh, the theme of mothers in Aliens. Uh, Sigourney Weaver loses her child and <laughs> then has to go and sort of kill the children of the mama alien. It's actually really well thought out. So it, it, what's interesting, though, is that if that's not your sensibility, that's not your sensibility, and it, you you can't really force yourself to put on that sensibility. And I think maybe that's what David Lynch was getting at because uh, you may or may not know this, but he, George Lucas wanted David Lynch to direct Return of the Jedi. And David Lynch didn't, he, he knew from the beginning it was probably not a good fit, but he did go up to Skywalker Ranch in Marin County. And you can YouTube this and listen to David Lynch tell it well, way better than I do. But he went to meet George Lucas and because his agent said rightfully, look, you're going to make millions of dollars. Like, well, why don't you just do this and uh, put it in the bank? Uh, but Lynch went up there and he just knew that he was going to be micromanaged and that he tells this hilarious story about Lucas showing him Wookiees. And he's like, I, I didn't know what these space monkeys were, these Wookiees. And I got a migraine and the migraine kept getting worse. Uh, but, you know, David Lynch, to his credit, knew I, I can't. It's just this isn't my sensibility. Now, he went on to do Dune. I think in the hopes that maybe he could bring his sensibility to bear on a sci-fi action blockbuster. Uh, and Dune is fascinating. I, you know, I, 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 anybody puts on Dune, I think it is a, a feast 
for the senses. But it is the second half, especially, and you know, a lot has been written about this. Lynch cut out a lot. I'm not sure it ever would have been great, but the second half, you can tell scissors were taken to it, and there's a real fight between the producer and the director. And Lynch, you said it was a misery, and blah, blah, blah. And, and after that, Lynch stayed true to who he was. And what's interesting is that often Lynch's masterpiece is considered Mulholland Drive, and it is a masterpiece. Uh, interesting, though, in the sh- sheer number of people who have seen it, uh, it's still not a movie that has been seen. And I think this is maybe what Lynch was getting at. It's not a movie as lauded as it is. And it's I think it's in Sight and Sound's top 10 for the critics of films of all time. And and going there, another movie, and we did a pod on this, that was Sight and Sound's number one was uh, Chantal Ackerman's uh, Jean Dielman, uh, which is a f- three and a half hour movie where for three hours and 25 minutes, you basically see this uh, mother, single mother, do the same thing over and over and over and over again, but you can tell something's getting to her. And then there's this moment that's shocking, and, and you should see it. I love Gene Dealman. We did a podcast on it. Uh, again, this gets number one in sight and sound, and it has this huge influence on critics, has a huge influence on filmmakers like Michael Haneke, Austrian filmmaker, uh, who made Funny Games and Caché and The White Ribbon and Amour. Uh, and it, it, the, he, he did one of my favorite Kafka adaptations. He adapted The Castle, and you should see, uh, you should see uh, Michael Haneke as The Castle. It, it, it is actually as close to how I feel about Kafka, and I love Orson Welles' The Trial, but the closest I've ever seen someone do an adaptation where I was like, that's how it felt to me, is Michael Haneke as The Castle. There are these artists who are the artist artists, the artist's artist, and there are filmmakers who are the filmmaker's filmmaker. You know, Quentin Tarantino talks about how influential Jean-Luc Godard was on him. And now look, there was a moment where in the 60s, not a moment, it was a decade almost, where Jean-Luc Godard, every time a Godard movie came out, the world saw it uh, in terms of the world that was really hooked into international cinema. And I think you could say that about Fellini and Kurosawa and Jean Renoir. And this is a different life, Satyajit Rai. Although Satyajit Rai is another story. Uh, you know, Satyajit Rai made the Apu trilogy. That's in my top 10 of all time. Uh, Pather Panchali, Aparajito, and The World of Apu. These three movies... Uh, Bengali movies from India about a boy, Apu, from his birth to when he's um, in his mid-30s, I think. And each movie deals with uh, Pather Panchali's his childhood, Aparajito's his adolescence, and the world of Apu is essentially uh, his young to adulthood. And uh, people who know Satyajit Rai uh, and love Satyajit Rai will tell you he is one of the greatest movie makers who ever lived. And his his style of humanism. He was a graphic designer uh, and an illustrator before he was a filmmaker. And his way of constructing sequences, his way of framing shots, his way of telling stories, his way of showing India, his progressiveness with his female characters, this influenced everybody, everybody in cinema. He was a movie maker's movie maker. And yet... It is criminal, I think, to a certain extent, how how not programmed Satyajit Rai is, even in rep theater. 
and uh, and you know Fassbender. We did a whole year on Rainer Werner Fassbender, the German filmmaker who really got to make three or four movies a year in Germany in the '60s and '70s and early '80s because they had a system in place where the government gave subsidies to filmmakers to make whatever they want wanted as long as they subsidized the arts. They didn't have to make uh, their money back. It wasn't like America. And so Fassbender was super disciplined and crazy, but in the best possible way. And he made three or four films a a year. But like Bergman in Sweden, uh, he often knew how to make them for a real low price. And I, you know, I've heard Kurosawa talk about this, and a lot of the international filmmakers who did not make movies in America, in the United States, or in in Mumbai, uh, another huge hub of big budget filmmaking. A lot of those cats, the, they always said that the trick was, and I think you see the Coens uh, in American cinema maybe most embody this in a way. They said the trick was making a movie for so little money that. As long as the movies were good and people wanted to be like, hey, I'm doing the next Bergman movie, uh, you would always make movies. And when you see Bergman movies, you notice that many of them only really are about two to five characters. Persona is obviously the, the biggest example of that. But even movies like Winter Light or Through a Glass Darkly, the later ones specifically, uh, Scenes from a Marriage or um, uh, From the Lives of the Marionettes. Uh, many of those, or Autumn Sonata, many of those movies, you could tell Bergman going, okay, he had a few scenes with crowds, but mostly those were five to eight person movies. And so I think also there's something to be said for you have a sensibility and you become a name that people want to see your next movie. And then probably you go, well, look, my movies, they tend to make this amount. And, you know, I tend to know that I like to write this kind of script and I tend to know that I like to push buttons or I like to explore this or that or the other thing. And so if I'm a guy or a gal whose movies, uh, Kelly Reichardt, I think, is someone who has figured this out. Uh, the it, Kelly Reichardt has been making, I think, about a movie a year or every two years. And uh, I think she she knows her budget. She knows what the rough return is going to be on her pictures. And uh, so, and she has a great working relationship with Michelle Williams and Kelly Reichardt goes out there and she makes, uh, she works, she makes her movies. She's building up a body of work, but she's not trying to, you know, she's not wasting 10 years trying to get someone to give her a hundred million dollars. I'd have to look at the budgets of Kelly Reichardt films, but I'd have to imagine their budgets are like between five hundred thousand to five million at most, uh, and uh, the and so she is getting her movies made, and people want to work with her. Uh, and so I think with sensibilities, and I'm I'm just talking this out. It's interesting when you go through it because probably first you have to be talented. Secondly, you have to get the breaks and not screw them up to get a movie out and then make another movie so that you have a little momentum and you have a bit of a career. And then third, you probably need to have some savvy about what kind of budget range you should be in. Uh, write the most amazing movie for that budget range. And, you know, if, if you know, you make a movie for – and I think Peter Jackson is a great example of this. First movie, it took him years, bad taste, probably cost – I know he got some government subsidy at the very end, maybe cost a hundred to five hundred thousand dollars. Then his next movie, Meet the Feebles, amazing <laughs> X-rated Muppet movie, uh, he gets a little more money. Then he makes Brain Dead Data Live, which is still, I think, one of his best movies. Amazing zombie movie, gets a little more money. Then 
he pivots, and I think he does Heavenly Creatures around that time. Uh, amazing, you know, he's been making these horror comedies. Then suddenly he shows that he can make a drama, although it still has his visual flair. Then he makes The Frighteners, and then he makes this huge leap and he does The Lord of the Rings. But I think that Jackson is a great example of someone who, uh, whether it was by design or just the way it happened, he was he, he was always going for it, but he was doing it in a budget range, and then he was getting a little more money, and then a little more money, and then a little more money, and then he gets his shot with Lord of the Rings. I think, now someone like Cameron, I just feel like Cameron constitutionally, and Spielberg too, but in totally different ways, just constitutionally could deal with the machine. Uh, the, but nevertheless, the, the, it's amazing to see, you know, Spielberg spent quite a bit of time in TV. I think he spent, I want to say six years, five years. I got to look it up. Maybe three years, three to five years in television, uh, before Duel really launched him. And even then he did Duel. He went back and did more TV. He did Sugarland Express and then he did Jaws and Jaws nearly broke him. But by the time he did Jaws, <laughs> it was only like. 28 or whatever, 27, 28. But he had been, I think, working professionally for seven years and had a bit of a skin. And also, I think Spielberg, I think you either have to be a diplomat or you really have to be a fighter. And probably you have to be both. And I think Cameron, I, I heard especially early on, was really tough to work with. But he, but he, the proof was always in the pudding. His movies are always making tons of money. And so maybe he rubbed people the wrong way. But maybe it was because he knew it was going to work. And he fought for it. And he's a very well-spoken man. So even if you were annoyed with James Cameron, I have to imagine that uh, you, you heard his argument. He were like, you know, this guy made Aliens. This guy made Terminator. Uh, he has a good argument. I'm, I'm going to trust him. And I think also you build up trust through your filmography. So this is all a long way. And, and I'm, I'm going to quickly wrap off a few things and then wrap up. You know, I love Fellini. I love Kurosawa. I've, I've said this a billion times, but my Desert Island movie is Seven Samurai. And even though Seven Samurai is was to its time the biggest hit in Japan, so it means it was a huge hit and it was a huge international hit. Uh, the sheer number of people who have seen Kurosawa films is probably in the millions compared to maybe, and I don't want to name check in this context, but there are some movie makers uh, whose movies, they've made a few movies and their movies have been seen by hundreds of millions of people. And yet maybe not cinematically uh, going to influence, endure, uh, be in the conversation, be the catalyst for generation after generation of filmmakers in terms of film art like Kurosawa. So all this stuff fascinates me, sensibility, and whether your sensibility, uh, and and I guess I I do know where I want to end, which is that I've always dreamed, and I have to imagine this is a lot of people's dream, dream, is uh, I've always wanted to somehow land in that sweet spot of David Lean, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, Akira Kurosawa, Federico Fellini, Jean Renoir, um, John Ford, Howard Hawks, Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick. Uh, these people who who made movies that are artistically incredible, and yet your whole family could sit down and enjoy them. Uh, you know, you can watch The Godfather One and Two as this incredible critique of capitalism and the corrosive effects of uh, money and business on family, or you can watch it as this amazing gangster epic 
uh, and family, and it works both ways. And uh, and I think Coppola is just another one who really was able to ride ride that bull. And that's always been the bull <laughs> I've wanted to ride, so I'll leave off there. Thank you, as always, Secret Movie Clubbers. Um, we will be back next week with Secret Movie Club Podcast 158. Uh, uh, join us tomorrow for Alfred Hitch speaking of one of these people who rode the bowl. Well, uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Psycho. We will uh, be showing that tomorrow, Saturday, uh, October 14th. Uh, go to Eventbrite for our whole calendar. Go to secretmovieclub.com uh, to see everything we're doing. Thank you so much. We have a lot of events coming up. We are fighting... We are determined. I want to make Secret Movie Club everything you want it to be. And uh, if you want to create, come join our workshops and our open mic short nights. And there you go. Okay. I love you, family.